This morning marks the third week of Advent as we celebrate God's plan. And our text comes from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who has been called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. This morning, I want us to sit and meditate on Mary's response. Mary's response exemplifies what it looks like to receive God's gospel. And in this short response, we also see the heart of discipleship. Now, before we get into this text and kind of break it down and, and enjoy it, I'm cognizant that some of you might be here exploring Christian faith. The miracles of scripture, the virgin birth, this may be a challenging hurdle for you. You may feel like this is where the Christians lose me. I love Jesus, the lover of the underdog and the fighter for justice. And I love the idea of caring for our fellow people. That all makes sense to you. But perhaps the virgin birth, this is, your, like, this is where we lose me. I would like to invite you to, you to consider we actually have some common ground this morning. Uh, I know it seems like there couldn't possibly be common ground, but I think there is. But if you are exploring Christian faith, but at the moment you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, and you would say at the moment you're not certain there's a God, then you and I, we both believe in virgin births. I believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, and you believe in the virgin birth of the universe. We both believe in a phenomenon that we can't explain. And I want to, I want to invite you this morning to consider the first mover behind all things and why all things exist. In, in, in the 80s, the late Stephen Hawking wrote a book called Brief History of Time. And he famously made a statement in this uh, uh, book that I'll read. It says this, quote, What is it that breathes fire into the equations and makes a universe for them to describe? The usual approach of science of constructing a mathematical model cannot answer the questions of why there should be a universe for the model to describe. 
Why does the universe go to all the bother of existing? And Hawking uh, goes on to say, you can call that thing that breathes fire into the equations God, if you will. He didn't believe that, but what he did was he separated science from the phenomenon that science cannot explain. It's a moment of intellectual humility where he's just confessing he has no answers for this. And I'm inviting you to consider this morning that the thing that is breathing fire into all of the equations, quote-unquote, the reason for the existence of the cosmos is the God of the Bible. Not a nebulous, vague God. Not cultural narratives around God where people would say, well, no, no, the, believing in the virgin birth and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's an absolute truth claim that I can't get behind. Therefore, all religions are false. Or, therefore, all religions are true or all religions are the same. Those are not grandiose truth claims. Can't even possibly defend those things with airtight positivism. So I would invite you this morning to consider that the first mover, the reason behind all existence is that God, the creator of all things, manifested, incarnated himself in the coming of Jesus Christ that first Christian day, wrote himself into world history where the scripture records and Roman antiquity records And the Babylonian Talmud records that in 33 AD under Pontius Pilate, Jesus Christ was crucified on a Roman cross. And three days later, the tomb was empty. And we don't believe in a missing body. We believe in a resurrected body that hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people saw. Which is why Christianity was not laughed out of Rome, but it thoroughly permeated Rome. And that's why there's a few billion of us around the world today in every culture speaking every tongue, believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm inviting you into that grand phenomenon today to consider what's breathing fire into the existence of the cosmos. Now, this text is, of course, not about us, though it holds great significance for us. It's about the birth of Christ. It's about the prophecy, the plan, God's plan for redemption, to redeem his creation. All of the Bible is... A unified story about Jesus. This text is about Jesus. But I do believe that it does hold life-changing significance for us. It can posture us and guide us and mature us. So before we ask the question, what does this passage mean to me? We're just going to ask the question, what does this text mean? In verse 30, you'll notice that we read that Mary found favor with God. The word favor is grace. In the Greek, it's charis. It means that quite literally, you could translate the language to say, The angel says to Mary, God has leaned towards you. He has extended towards you. It is this undeserved, wonderful grace coming towards Mary. And we we would do well to have a really high regard for this young woman. We don't pray to Mary, of course. That would be one step too far to pray to her. However, we would do well to have high regard for her. And the whole Protestant movement would probably benefit from having a high regard for Mary. Not because we're idolizing Mary. Because we, we ought to just sit and pause and be blown away at the work of God's grace towards this young woman. Staggering level of depth and trust and worship and character and integrity. Magnificent. Not because Mary self-generated those things, but because of God's movement towards Mary in grace and her response to God being a radical trust. That here we have 
this promise of the birth of Christ, that uh, it is just absolutely uh, staggering to consider what it means that God had moved towards her and that she had found favor with God. And we see this picture of her, just this response to the gospel as uh, it plays out in her life in that way. The other significance of this passage is that these words to Mary, they reach all the way back to Eden. That after the fall of man, after the divine treason in the garden, after humanity said, we don't need God, we will be God, we will choose to fulfill ourselves apart from God, all of this taking place in the book of Genesis, God says to the enemy, in the Hebrew, the Satan, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And right in the beginning of the Bible, we get this image of a wounded warrior who would come and redeem God's creation whom he loves. And that message at the beginning is now finding this profound and unmistakable redemptive revisiting here with Mary. This beautiful redemptive circle in the role of woman in God's creation and recreation narrative. Eve was seduced by the word of a fallen angel. Mary is given good news by the word of a messenger angel. Eve's disobedience ends in sin. Mary's obedience ends in salvation. Eve hid from God, disbelieving his word. Mary trusted God and believed his word and hid his word in her own heart. This beautiful redemptive circle that is very intentionally being given to us as God is redeeming all things. And the angel says to Mary, you will call his name Jesus. In the Hebrew, you will call his name Yeshua. A very common name of all the names in the Old Testament that Jesus could have been named. Adam, Moses, Abraham. Of all the names, it's Yeshua, Joshua. Yeshua led his people into the promised land. Yeshua led his people in the exodus through waters into salvation in the promised land. The angel gives Mary the name. You will call his name Yeshua. Because the exodus, of course, foreshadows our exodus. Moses brings the law. But Moses does not enter into the promised land. A profound picture of none of us being saved by the law. Moses couldn't even keep the law that he delivered. And then Yeshua comes, Joshua comes, and Joshua takes the people into the promised land. And Jesus is given this name. And this is, of course, no coincidence. As the exodus foreshadows the global, historical, multi-ethnic, eternal exodus of all of God's people. And there was a promise of the people and the land, and it's bigger than the ancients ever thought that it was. And uh, to borrow from Dr. Michael Allen, the systematic theology prof at Knox, who I had the pleasure of learning from him. He said the people were bigger than everybody thought, and the land was bigger than everybody thought. The promise was bigger than everybody thought. This is not a replacement theology where we suggest that the people of Israel and the, and, and, uh, the nation of Israel and our heritage doesn't matter. It matters because if it were not for God choosing those slaves out of Egypt as the means by which we bring grace to the planet, none of us would be here. But the significance is that the people is the nation of Israel and every other nation. The land, the promise, it's not a small patch of land in the Middle East. It, in the end, is the earth. It will be restored and redeemed. God's plan to redeem all of creation. And you will give his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. He will have a kingdom that has absolutely no end. And so, united to Jesus Christ, we are all now 
God's people. We are all now part of God's great plan. So let's break down this text. I just wanted to give you some of that history there. But let's just look at Mary's response. And let's just marinate in each of the words that she gives. Um, I think it's just it's so beautiful and significant. She starts out by saying, Behold! And behold is an act of worship and an announcement of trust. Behold, it means look and see, but in context, it means more than look and see. The way that Mary's using it here, it means more than look. And notice she's saying to the angel, behold. If you were going to a Christmas party in the next couple of weeks, and you walked in, and you swung the door open, and you said, behold, your friend whom you love and have invited to the party. That would be a very scriptural use of this word behold. Because you are, you are not just saying look. You are saying look as I announce who I am in relation to you. And that's what Mary's doing. Look at who I am in relation to my God. You see, this is, this is what we do in theology. When I say we, I don't just mean preachers and theologians. I mean we as Christians. This is what we do. The greater that we, that we sort of grasp a little bit of the grandness of God, the more we understand who we are in relation to him. And that's where the reform happens. In that sense of wonder. Mary says, behold, let me announce who I am in relation to you. She's saying, I see who I am. See, behold means I see, right? To see, to understand. And she's announcing, I see who I am in relation to this great God. And she's not given a lot of clarity. She's given hardly any explanation. God's plan is not going to make her life easy or understandable or painless. But Mary chose to trust in a way that would bring her to the end of herself, the very edge of herself every single day. And she's given a promise. And the promise is that God's power will overshadow her, or you could also translate it, envelop her. And you know, God's presence doesn't merely envelop Mary for divine conception, and that's it. And then the power lifts, like in the Old Testament. God envelops Mary, and not only by the the, the wondrous and mysterious presence of the Holy Spirit as she conceived Jesus, but God's presence envelops Mary in an ongoing empowerment. As we look at Mary's life, as we look at her eventual trust in Jesus, she's so young. It was common in the ancient world to be betrothed at such a young age. Many cultures in the world today, people are betrothed at a very young age. And when we consider the depth of her character and her worship and her devotion and her trust in God by his grace, it is truly staggering. When I was Mary's age... I was not relating to God anywhere close to that. When I was Mary's age, I thought God was basically a cosmic vending machine. And the purpose of prayer was to try and get God and all the angels of heaven to give me what I thought I needed in that moment. And that was kind of the extent of my relationship with God. The, the concept of wanting God for God was not even in my realm of understanding. But Mary, she doesn't love God for things or trust in God in, in the hopes that things work out a particular way. We see in this, she loves him for who he is. There's a trust in who he is. And so she says, behold, this act of worship and an announcement of trust. Let's move on. Then she says, 
I'm a servant of the Lord. This humble confidence in her identity, it produces security despite an announcement of great uncertainty, unfathomable uncertainty. She calls herself in the Greek a doule. A doule is a female servant, a handmaiden, handsmaid. And in the ancient world and in the Bible, a quick note for those of you exploring Christian faith today, that when the Bible uses the word servant or slave, there's a range of meaning there. Sometimes it can mean oppressive, violent, you know, uh, slavery, uh, much of, uh, which in 100% of all contexts and throughout all time, God has found abhorrent. So it can mean that. But it'll use the same word to also describe people who are basically economically not independent, and therefore the Bible calls them slaves because they've got to live on a property and work somebody's land. And it's just, if you didn't own everything, you, the Bible would call you a slave. If you have a mortgage, in biblical terms, the Bible would say you're a slave. You're a slave to the bank. You're a slave to your job. You can't choose to not work tomorrow. Why? You're a slave. That's the language the Bible would use for that. And that's not an oppressive ethnic, you know, sort of violent slavery. It's an economic condition. And then there was another form of slavery, which, or, or sorry, of, of serving, servanthood, that uh, Mary's using here, which was, there was a willing service. There was a servant, that, it's a bond servant, is that you actually loved the people that you served. And there were many contexts in, throughout scripture, the scriptural context, where somebody would work their way out of economic debt, but because they loved the people, because they loved, I know it's abhorrent language for a modern, but because the slave loved the master, the employee had a great relationship with their boss and enjoyed it, even though they were no longer economic slaves, they chose to stay there and just work there because it was a great arrangement. I've got a house, I work the land, I'm eating, my children have food, I'm a servant. And so in some contexts, the female servants... As Mary is calling herself a doule, she loves the master. She says, behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. And she uses this language as saying, I am one willingly giving up my will to serve the will of another. It's not my will here. It's your will. This is what she's saying. It's really incredible. Of course, this is all by God's grace. She didn't self-generate any of this. This is a deep work of, of God's spirit. In her life. And she presents herself in worship and she's ready in this readiness. She knows who she is. She's a servant of the Lord. And if you roll servanthood into all of the other identities that the New Testament gives us, being friends of Jesus, John 15, being sons and daughters of God, Romans 2, having an inheritance that is insured, Romans 8. If you roll all things together, you get this full dynamic picture of what it means to be a disciple. It's soul strengthening and it's, it's renewing in the heart and in the mind. There's this recalibrating trust that our Father is one of love and wisdom. Even when the immediate road ahead is terrifying, even when the immediate road ahead is unclear, riddled with risk, trials that are waiting for you on Monday are intimidating. The, the sense of identity as God's child breeds tremendous security. And this is what we see in Mary's response, even though she is no doubt intimidated and no doubt has no clue as to what her future holds. But there is this security. I know who I am. I'm a servant of the Lord. And when God became man and manifested and incarnate in Jesus Christ, 
in order to rescue us. He didn't grasp the power and privilege of his deity. He joined the gritty weakness of his loved, beloved creations in humanity. And he became a powerless fetus within a teenage woman's womb. And he depended on her breath and her blood. And later, Mary would depend on his breath and his blood. And we, like Mary, grow as disciples dependent on his breath and his blood. You know, God's whole history with humanity has been temple-making. The Garden of Eden was a temple, the beautiful, mysterious union of God and his creation. And then after the fall of man, we've got the next temple and the mobile temple through the Old Testament where God wants to dwell with his people. And then right here, for the first time in all of history, Mary is a flesh-and-blood temple of God. God's always been about temple making and now she is a flesh and blood temple and the New Testament teaches that you and I are spiritual temples. And so by God's grace, Mary offered her body, her heart, her mind, the way that Mary lived, her love, her integrity, her character, her purity. It all mattered because she was quite literally a temple of God. And united to Jesus Christ, now our lives matter. Our love, our care, our integrity. Our willingness to bend our knee to the Lordship of Christ. To put off our sin. To put on the nature of our Savior. Yes, we fail at it. But the heart filled with grace says, this is what I want. I know who I am. I'm a servant of the Lord. Yes, I have to come to the table every Sunday because I'm a sinner. But I'm a servant of the Lord. I'm yours. Yes, I I fail at who I was created to be. But I know who you have destined for me to be. I am a servant of the Lord. May I live to the glory of the one who saved me in grace. Mary was this true believer, this obedient woman of faith. She believed in God and treasured his word and pondered his word. And she allowed Christ to be formed in her. And then she carried Christ with her and she nurtured Jesus. And then she becomes a disciple of Jesus. And then she follows Jesus and she listens to Jesus. And then she's a witness of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And united to Christ, we have Christ formed in us. And we carry Christ with us. And we nurture our relationship with Christ. And we become disciples of Christ. And we follow Christ. And we listen to Christ. And then we bear witness to the death and the resurrection of Christ. This humble confidence in her identity, it produces this great security. Let's move to the final thing. She says, let it be to me according to your word. What does this mean? Let it be. It's not Sarah, Sarah. It's not... It is what it is. It's not what she says to the angel. Well, it is what it is. Am I right? Let it be. 1970, Paul McCartney writes a song. The Beatles released Let It Be. Paul McCartney said in an interview, this is about his mother, whose name was Mary. She died when he was 14. He was dealing with anxiety and and uh, depression and he was very worried about his life at a particular season and he had this dream that his mother came to him and she's saying to him it's going to be okay it's going to be okay it's going to be okay let it be so it is a positive song and it's heartwarming and it's and it's wonderful and it's sentimental and it's and it's beautiful in its own right but when mary says let it be it's actually quite a bit more Active than that. It's, it's quite a bit more active than it's going to be okay, just surrender to the moment. Now, she did surrender to the moment, but what's 
what she's actually saying here, she, it's an interesting verb in the Greek. It's just one word. Let it be is just one word, and it's gonoito, which is a way of saying, I'm not just passively accepting this. I am actively welcoming this. Actively welcoming it. It's not, oh God, whatever you're up to, I guess it's fine. I, behold, here's who I am. I'm your child. My life is in your hands. I am actively welcoming your will into my life. Let it be. And it's good for us to pause in amazement at all of this. Because when, we, when we're amazed at Mary saying, bring it on. It causes us to marvel at God. Because when, when this all begins, greetings highly favored one. God is with you. What do you think that means? That Mary's just sort of along, had been along for the ride, for the ride as a passive as a sort of a passive bystander? Absolutely not. Greetings, highly favored one. God is with you. This teaches us some wonderful things about his grace. We're not along for the ride. We're, we are actually participants in a radical revival. There was radical revival in this young woman's life. She's only 14, 15 years old, but incredible work of grace. To have a young woman whose life is about to get dumped upside down, who's going to be a social pariah, say, I'm yours. Profound heart of discipleship. Just wondrous, the work of God's grace. And it's encouraging for us. Again, this text is not actually about us, but it gives us wonderful insight, I think, that repostures us. And then in verse 32 and 33, we get the passage where he says that Christ is going to come and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and his kingdom will have no end. It's beautiful. It's so, it's so restful if you could just rest in a kingdom that will have no end because our kingdoms all come to an end. Kingdoms come to an end all the time. This is world history. They come to an end by the sword or they come to an end by the stroke of a pen. We can bring kingdoms to an end. We built it right into our somewhat semi-functioning democratic society. It's called voting. If you want someone's kingdom to come to an end, you rally the base, and in four years, with the stroke of a pen, the kingdom comes to an end. It's one of the things that our neighbors from the South really enjoy about various privileges the president gets that our prime minister doesn't get. Right? They always show that sitting at that big desk, and then they pull out those executive or I forget what they're called, executive orders, and they just grab the... You know, the previous president just grabbed a big, huge, size 70 font Sharpie. Ah, yes. Now's my chance to undo everything that people have been fighting with the stroke of a Sharpie. And then the other side goes, oh, I, 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 you wait four years. You just wait. Your kingdom's going to come to an end, Right? All the conservatives right now, they're all like, oh, the liberals are like, no, our kingdom. And this has been world history. 
We pride ourselves as moderns in being so advanced in so many ways, but we're still marching across the earth, building bombs and just destroying apartment buildings full of civil. I mean, what are we doing here? All the kingdoms eventually come to an end, but Christ is going to come and he is going to do what none of us with all of our, whether it's politics or social justice efforts, which are good and are helpful and wonderful and needed, but we can't, we're not going to save the planet. We're not going to do it. We should be ecologically responsible, you know, and care about the world. But we're not going to save it. We're not the savers. It won't happen. My friend, I'm recycling my cans. Like, I'm all about it. But there's also somebody who wakes up the next day and goes, yeah, you know what? We're going to just do this thing here real quick. It's going to make me a quick billion dollars. And it's going to undo my recycling of my cans. The reason why I don't relate to my life, whether it's politics, ecological responsibility, caring for the city, feeding the poor, with a sense of futility, is because I know that all these kingdoms are coming to an end. And Christ will come and Christ will return. And what that does is that infuses all of our vocations with significant meaning. Because now you're not just doing something, biding the time until the sun goes supernova and the world doesn't exist anymore. And you told yourself it mattered in the meantime. We are actively, as servants of the Lord, in a participation with a renewal that Christ will bring, that Christ will accomplish when he returns. So now our vocations matter. Now our ecological responsibility matters. It's not futility. Now our care for the poor matters. Now if you're a business owner and you make sure that those who are in your employ can do well and actually live in the city that they work in and can have food and pay the rent and you know, you're a person of integrity and generosity, now suddenly it all matters. Everything matters. Because though these kingdoms are coming to an end, Christ's kingdom is not going to come to an end. So we are, as believers and disciples, increasingly living into a congruence with what is inevitably coming. This is why this kingdom coming to an end is inevitably, being a Christian is inevitably, unavoidably political. I don't mean political in a partisan way. I was making partisan jokes earlier, but I'm, I'm just having fun. I don't mean being Christianity is, is political in a partisan way, where I should get up here at every election season and make sure very clear that all of the people at Redeemer know which party to vote for, because this is, this is the one team Jesus would be about. Not that. It's unavoidably political, because political, if there's a kingdom coming to the end, then there's a king. And if there's a king, then there's rule. And if there's rule, then there's law. And if there's law, then I, as a citizen of the kingdom and of the king, must bend my knee. And that bending of the knee in discipleship leads to my flourishing. The flourishing of my soul. The flourishing for my children. The flourishing for my friendships. Because now I'm living with a dual citizenship. I'm a, I'm a citizen of the king whose kingdom will have no end. But I've got to deal with the political realities of Kitchener-Waterloo. Therefore, I will be as affirming as possible where I can be and then challenge when I must and do that with civility. The father unfolds his plan of redemption and then Mary actively receives this life-altering call to participate in the plan of redemption. And then Christ the King would come and accomplish this plan of redemption. And the Holy Spirit continues to overshadow and indwell the church so that we can proclaim, proclaim this gospel so that God continues his work of redemption. Because in a surprising contradiction to what we deserve, Jesus Christ did not come to bring judgment. He came to bear our judgment. And that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. 
So, as we ponder Mary's response, may the Spirit do this renovating work so that it is also our response. May we, overshadowed and indwelt by the Spirit of God, be compelled by His life-changing grace to say, Behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. May we go into the city with boldness and tenderness and give a defense for the hope that we enjoy in Christ. Amen.